All right, so, wow, I was behind stage with Lisa. She is just an inspiration mm -hmm. to me. I love her. Uh, I have loved, if any of you women have a dream that God has given you for speaking, for writing, or for ministry, I want you to, I want to encourage you to look up um, Proverbs 31 Ministries, and she speaks. Mm -hmm. She speaks. Great tools, great resources for you there. Not only that, but I don't know about you guys, but life is sometimes overwhelming, mm -hmm. and we need to get in the Word of God. I am loving my first five yes. app. Yeah. I know Lisa will share more about that mm -hmm. with you, but it is totally, totally awesome. To, uh, to get up first thing in the morning, you can set whatever time you want for the alarm for it to go off. And it's just a quick devotion so that you're giving that first five minutes every day um, to God. Yeah, and I just, I love that we're able to have Lisa here. She's with Proverbs 31. She's the president. And I remember seeing Lisa back in 2007, I think it was, 2008, in Greenville at an event. And just her, her book that she had there, What Happens When Women Walk in Faith, blew my mind. Mm -hmm. So being able to have her here with us now, um, a best-selling author of yes. Unglued mm -hmm. and The Best Yes, and, and several other books. She speaks at, at Catalyst, Lifeways at Abundance Conference mm -hmm. and Women of Joy. She speaks about 40 events a year. So how wow. blessed and privileged are we wow. to have wow. her in Princeton, North mm -hmm. Carolina? It's crazy. Um, but married you know, to art. Married to art. Uh -huh. She lives right here in North Carolina, uh -huh. so it was a hop, skip, and a jump for yep. her. And I hear she has a mouse that refuses to, to leave, leave their kitchen. kitchen. That's exactly. Right. That's right. Would you put your hands together and make welcome Lisa Turkers. Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's a joy to be here in my home state of North Carolina. So this is awesome. Wasn't Beverly amazing this morning? Can we just give her another thank you? Yeah. I thought today for our session, maybe it would be fun just to have a conversation. Um, instead of me getting up here and giving a big slick message, I do have a message prepared for the note takers in the room. Your anxiety just went through the roof. I do. I have a message, and it has points. We're going old school, seriously. It has three points, so you are gonna, and I'm going to make the points so clear. It will take me a while to get to the points, but I will say, you do not have to fear. If you are a note taker in the room, raise your hand. Where are you? Yes. There is a title to this message. There is a section of scripture where we are going to park in that section, and you're going to have three points, and you're going to have some quotes to write down. You are going to be happy girls. But I didn't want to get into it before I really, really, really just wanted to let you know my heart, and that is to just have a conversation. And just to be with you today is such an honor for me. I have some special guests in the audience I would love to acknowledge. I've got two of my staff members here. I think Leah is running around. She's the one with the long blonde hair. She kind of looks like Rapunzel, you know. Um, she's so cute. So she's running around with the book table. Um, and is she in the room? Is Leah here? 
she's going to be so excited to, to have me call her out. But I don't see her, so she's probably out at the book table. Then we've got Meredith. She's on staff with me. So Meredith Brock, I'm very happy to have her. And then I have Jeff James, who's with my publisher, Thomas Nelson. So if you enjoy reading my books, you can find Jeff at some point today and say thank you for taking a chance on Lisa and publishing her book. So that's amazing. Um, let's go to the Lord and ask the most distinguished guest, really our father of our house, to be here with us now. Lord, thank you. What an honor it is to live in a country where we can freely preach and teach and talk about your word. We don't take it for granted. We pause right now and we acknowledge how blessed we are. And Lord, in a day where so many of us constantly catch ourselves saying that we're stressed, help us to remember that most of us are managing blessings. And um, just help us to be more thankful. Lord, I ask you now to help us set ourselves aside, help us set our preconceived notions of what we want from this message. Help us set all of that aside. Help us set aside the desire to think about all the other people who need to hear this message beside ourselves. So, Lord, we come to you with open hearts and ask that you would prepare us till the soil of the deep places of our heart because we need your word today. We need you to speak to us today. We need your direction, your correction, your encouragement, your love. We need all of that. And so we stand here with open hearts, ready minds, willing spirits to receive what you have to give. In your holy name, we pray. And all God's girls said, amen. Okay, for the note takers, we're going to go ahead and get this out of the way. I know you're excited. I want you to write down, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, for those of you who haven't traveled to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and you just started sweating, I understand because I have been there when the pastor says, turn to 1 Zumazing Isaiah and everybody else gets there and I can't for the life of me. Hebrews just about killed me before I started studying the Bible on a regular basis. I was convinced Hebrews was in the Old Testament and y'all should have seen me flipping through the Old Testament looking for some Hebrews. It was a situation. So. We're going to start at the table of contents, and I want everybody to say, there is no shame in turning to the table of contents. So if you look at the table of contents, 1 Samuel is in the section called Old Testament, and it goes like this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you find 1 Samuel, and you can draw your finger across, has a page number, y'all, that is amazing, right? So, 1 Samuel, you know how to get there now, and then you just go over to chapter 25. So, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And the title of this message today is God is Good. Now, don't finish that the typical way. Like, don't write in your notes anything else because we're going to finish that sentence in just a little while in a completely different way than what you usually hear people finishing that sentence. So just right at the top of your page, God is good. And then I want you to write 1 Samuel chapter 25. And then just for the note takers, if you don't like to take notes, you do not have to let me boss you right now. You just do your thing, right? But for the note takers in the room, 
who you're going to need to be friends with because if you don't take notes, you're going to have to go and copy hers later. I'm just warning you, okay? But don't feel at all compelled to take notes right now. But just for the note takers, if you want to know thematically what's about to be addressed in 1 Samuel chapter 25, it's the story of David and Abigail. Now, I've been traveling a lot to the Holy Land and studying a lot in just really just in all kinds of biblical settings over in the Holy Land. But I, I have enjoyed so much going to these places and stepping into the reality of what these biblical characters would have seen and would have smelled and would have experienced because it's made the Bible leap from just being flat words on a page to suddenly becoming like this technicolored movie. I've been to the Holy Land now six times in the past 18 months. And um, I, I told my husband, I guess I'm kind of approaching midlife. And I'm making peace with it. You don't have to worry. I'm totally making peace with this. Last weekend, I was in the Charlotte airport. And I finally had to break down and buy some reader glasses because I guess I've hit that place in my life. So I started explaining to my husband, if I've got to have reader glasses, that might be an indication I've hit somewhere close to midlife. And if I'm hitting somewhere close to midlife, then it's okay for me to have a midlife crisis. And if someone's got to have a midlife crisis, the Holy Land, an obsession with the Holy Land is not a bad one to have, okay? It's an expensive one, but it's not a bad one. So I've been to the Holy Land six times in the past 18 months, and I will go again in May. And I've been studying over there because I've felt such a deep responsibility that one of my greatest goals when I come and have a conversation with girls who are giving their time to come to an event like this, one of my greatest goals is to make you so fired up about the Bible that this is not a day that starts and finishes, but this is a launching pad. This is a day that you can point back on and say, that was the day that I really, really, really started getting passionate about reading the Bible for myself. That was the day that I got so fired up about that section of scripture that was taught to me that I started thinking in my daily life, when is the next few minutes I can have with my Bible? Not did I give a few minutes to God today, but when is the next few minutes? Craving it like chocolate, like your next Starbucks drink. You know how we think about it, you know? Some of you, I don't even like coffee, but you people who do, y'all are like crazy about coffee. It's insane. It's like, I was telling Meredith this morning, I was like, you seriously like coffee. Like you think that this dirty dishwater that tastes so bitter, like you look forward to that. I'm just trying to figure it out. And she's like, Lisa, if when I sleep, if the minute I open my eyes, if someone could just pour it into my mouth. <laughs> she's like that first sip, I just cannot wait for it. You're strange. That's all I have to say. I don't. Is there anybody else besides me and my friend Jeff who does not like coffee? Just raise your hand. We are an army, people. We are small, but we are mighty, okay? 
And just to keep us humble, we have our own addictions, so we do not need to shame those people who like coffee. We have our own set of issues. Can we say amen? But here's the thing. You know, if you do like coffee or think of something else that you crave, you think about it. You wake up and you look forward to it. And then when you think about a break, you are strategizing how you can manipulate that reality into your presence, right? Because you love it so much. That's the way I want the Bible to be for you. That's the way I want. It's like at 3 o'clock, I'm going to have a 10-minute break. And I can't think of something else I would rather do than to open up my Bible and just get a little more. That is not the way I've always felt about the Bible. But God has infused in me this deep passion for his word, a great love for this truth that has totally changed me. I have five kids. So you say, woo, girl, that explains why you need the Bible so much. I agree. <laughs> I have survived five people going through middle school. I have survived four of my five meeting the people that they will marry. I have three kids getting married in 2016. <laughs> I know, y'all, it's the craziest thing. I have survived that child. Now, <laughs> some of y'all have the sweetest kids. I'm saying, y'all, they are sweet. It's like, take a bath. Yes, mama. Would you like me to put on lotion and deodorant too, right? <laughs> so, that's awesome for you. I, I... I don't know. I had five people, um, five, and um, three biological, two adopted, and none of them came like that. Not a one of them. So think of all that sweetness, like take a bath and they say, yes, would you like me to put on lotion and deodorant and oh, and I'll dress myself and I'll actually wear the matching pajamas that you dreamed that I would always wear, right? So think all of that, the exact opposite, and those are my people. It is amazing. And so, but, but I do have one that's that child who just, I mean, came out of the womb in the mood for a fight with me. Like she took one look at me and she thought to herself in her little infant brain, I can take her. Sure enough. Now, can I just tell y'all something that's so funny that I get tickled about? I mean, seriously tickled about. That one is about to marry. Wait for it. A pastor. Which leads me to our message. God is good. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. 
Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. Now I'm going to help you out really quick, just in case y'all ever teach this section of scripture. Do not be confused that this is Carmel like where Elijah called fire down from heaven. I know this because in Bible class, I raised my hand thinking I was about to impress a whole bunch of people and said, oh, is that the same Carmel where Elijah called fire down from heaven? And they all looked at me and said, no. So I'm saving you from that. Different Carmel, okay? But let me give you the, the kind of the picture here. Mayon is a city on a hill right here. And then you've got Carmel, which is on a hilltop right here. And hilltop to hilltop, it's about a mile apart. There's a little ravine that cuts down from Mayon where you can secretly get over to Carmel without being seen. That's going to be important in just a little while in our story. The people in our story live in Mayon and they work in Carmel. So it says here, a certain man in Mayon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name, and I feel like we should play the organ because he's, he's a situation in our story, okay? His name, we're going to use the Hebrew pronunciation. Your Bible spells it N-A-B-A-L, but I want you to repeat after me the Hebrew pronunciation, which is Naval. Repeat after me, Naval. Okay, so when we hear Naval, this is what I want you to think. Dude is rude. Okay, that's just going to be a simple way for you to understand his nature. So there was a certain man who was in Mayon, had property at Carmel. He was very wealthy. Verse 3, his name was, dun, 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 Naval. And his wife's name was Abigail. The Bible goes on to explain that she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. So you've got Naval, dude is, and then you've got Abigail, she's intelligent and, okay. Then you've also got another person in this story. So in verse 3, it explains that Naval has a wife. Her name is Abigail. She's intelligent and beautiful, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So that's Abigail and Naval. Then you've got David. Verse 4, it says, while David was in the desert, he heard Naval was shearing sheep. Now let me give you a little context. This is David who if you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, this is the same David. David is at an in-between time in his life. David has been anointed to be the future king, but he has not yet been appointed to take the throne. So while he has rights to the throne, he has not been placed on the throne. And there's another king there, King Saul, who hates David, who has grown jealous of David, whose heart has grown cold and hard, and now is trying to kill David. So David is running for his life. And I say that David is in this in-between time because just imagine if God came to you today and said, you are the next president of the United States. Now, that would be a pretty amazing meeting with God. I mean, first of all, that God would come and speak to you. Second of all, that you're a woman and that would make history, right? And, and then third of all, you would say probably like, well, that's awesome, but maybe you need to teach me a little about the government. Like, there's just some stuff that I don't understand, right? 
Now, I've often thought a mama in the White House would set some people straight. I'm just telling you, because mamas don't mess around. We don't. And so, but just imagine God comes to you and says, you are going to be the future president of the United States. And God sends someone to anoint you and to proclaim this over you in front of your family. And then the person who anointed you goes away and eventually dies. And you're still just running carpool. And you're still just coming to church. And you're in this weird place where you know you have been given a huge assignment but it doesn't look very much like God has positioned you, so you might start wondering, what was that all about, God? Like, for real? Have you really given me this big purpose? Think about the place that David is in. You see, he has been told that he will be the future king of Israel, but none of his circumstances look that way at all. As a matter of fact, when we find him in this story, he is leading a group of people, but he's been hiding in caves. So the people that are following him are other people who have been hiding in caves. And it, there's a description of these people in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, and it says this. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. Now, there's a group of people that would be fun to lead, right? So just imagine what a precarious position that David is in. Told that he's supposed to be the future king, but he's currently hiding in caves with crazy people. It would be very, very difficult in this situation that David is in to continue to believe that God's anointing will eventually actually become an appointing and a reality. So that's where David is. So it says in verse 4, while David was in the desert, he heard that Naval was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Naval at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. And when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my young men, since we have come at festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. You see, David has been doing, David and his men, which at this point he has about 600 men with him. So David and his 600 men have been doing Naval a great favor. At night, they have been encamping like a human wall around Naval's flocks, around his wealth to protect them. And it's unclear if they are getting paid for this job or if he's just expecting Naval to give him a tip of some sort, some sort of gracious payment. It's unclear whether there has been any kind of agreement. But what is clear is that David has done something very, very kind for Naval. Now it is about to be festive time. It's kind of like it's about to be Thanksgiving. And at Thanksgiving, you like to have special food. So David is saying, send these 10 men to Naval and say to Naval, we have done you such a great service. We have, we have treated your, your servants well. We have protected your wealth. Now, since it's about to be festive time, can you give us some special festival food? 
And I know David expects surely Naval will do that for us. It's about to be sheep shearing time. He's going to have all kinds of extra wealth because of shearing the sheep and selling the wool. So, of course, Naval should do this for David. Verse 9. But when David's men arrived, they gave Naval this message in David's name. Then they waited. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 10. Naval answers David's servants. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread, water, and meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Well, David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. They basically said, we are telling. And David said to his men, once he gets this report, no, he did not say that to us. I will cut him. That... (laughs) Now, that is a a loose translation. (laughs) Maybe your Bible says, David said, put on your swords. But basically, it's the same. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Because there's a total of how many men with David? 600. So 400 are going to go with him with drawn swords, with testosterone pulsing through, with revenge on their minds. Now, you see, the reason that these men with David are in distress, in debt, and discontented like we discovered in 1 Samuel chapter 22, the reason is because wealthy landowners like Naval have been doing these men wrong for a very long time. You see, what they would do, these wealthy landowners would make a loan to these men that wanted to try to increase the provision for their family. So they would get a loan from one of the wealthy landowners, just like Naval. And then they would buy extra flocks or they would buy extra land or they would do something to invest that money to increase their wealth. But before they had an opportunity to actually make a profit on their increased investment, these wealthy landowners would call for their money and these men could not possibly pay it back. So they would take their existing flock, and for interest, they would take some of their land. And if that still wasn't enough, they would start to take their children. And if that still wasn't enough, then they would make that man one of their slaves. So there's no wonder that these men that were following David were in distress, in debt, and discontented. Now this wealthy landowner has dishonored David and refused to give them festive food. And now David, as their leader, is so excited. And he's saying, put your swords on. Do you think these men are excited about revenge or disappointed in revenge? Oh, they're so excited. They're like, They've been waiting for somebody to tell them to put their sword on so they could go and attack a wealthy landowner that has done them so wrong. So with revenge on their brain and the taste of blood in their mouth, they draw their swords and they're going after Naval and his whole family. Well, in verse 14, one of the servants tells Naval's wife, Abigail, because you know one of the servants like, we got to do something. It is time to get a woman involved. So one of the servants went to go tell Naval's wife, Abigail. Now, listen, I just love how this servant speaks because if, if the servant was speaking to Naval, it would have been just a few words like, we need help. 
But when the servant goes to speak to Abigail, I know it must be a woman's servant because this is what happens. David sent his messengers from the desert to give his masters his greetings, but he heard no insults at them. And yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us the whole time. They were out there in the fields missing nothing with theirs was missing night and day. They were wild wound us and all the time they were putting sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master. Pause for some drama. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man and no one can talk to him. Well, Abigail, she understood every bit of all that. And the Bible says in verse 18, Abigail lost no time. Because what do we know about Abigail? She is beautiful and she's so intelligent. Abigail loses no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them up on the donkeys with a partridge in a pear tree, right? <laughs> now, this is what cracks me up so much. And note-taking people, we are eventually going to get to our points. Don't stress, okay? But this is what cracks me up so much. I know David asked just for the basics because when Naval replied to David's request, he said, why should I take my bread, water, and meat? David basically asked for a glorified happy meal, right? Just a hamburger with a side of water, right? That's all David asked for. But when Naval denied David in the basics of what he should have given, now a woman has gotten involved and there's gonna be a whole banquet prepared, right? Look at all that she is preparing. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seeds of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs. She loaded all that up on the donkeys. Now, how many of you like math? Raise your hand if you like math. Okay, perfect. All four of you. This is amazing. <laughs> you are going to love this part. So I'm going to do this just for you. All right. Remember, how many men did David have with him? 600. All right. And remember, Abigail is beautiful and intelligent. So when it says here she took 200 loaves of bread, those of you who like math, I'm going to teach you some Bible food math, okay? When it says that she took 200 loaves of bread, I know how intelligent Abigail is by this one act alone. She wouldn't have done, she wouldn't have done like wonder bread, this laffa that's being referred to. That's the bread that they would do. It's not like wonder bread, not like a loaf. Laffa is a round piece of bread like this that when divided would serve three men. She made 200 loaves of bread or 200 laffa, each serving three, which is the perfect portion for how many men? She is beautiful and intelligent. Now, let's do the two skins of wine. These would have been goat skins. Each skin of wine would hold about 15 liters of wine. So each goat skin would hold about 15 liters. She prepared two of them, so that's a total of how many liters? 30. If you take 30 liters of wine and divide it up between 600 men, it's the perfect communion-sized cup of wine. Perfect. She is beautiful and intelligent. Would it have been fermented wine? I love it when you ask that question. Thank you for asking. Yes, it absolutely, positively would have been fermented wine. Now, how do I know that? Because the men wouldn't have taken the communion-sized cup of wine and just swigged it like this. What they would have done is they would have added it to their water that they had with them, and it would have, the alcohol in the wine would have purified that water, it would have taking care of the bacteria so that their stomachs could be prepared to receive the extra food that they were about to consume during this festival 
time. Abigail was so beautiful, but she was also very intelligent. She knew David had 600 men. I'm convinced she had been watching them, and at some point she must have counted them, and that her heart was already thankful for what these men with David had done. So she loaded all this food up on the donkeys, then she told her servants in verse 19, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Naval. Dun, dun, dun. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, why was she in the ravine? Because she wanted to stay hidden. That's right. There were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Abigail was beautiful and intelligent, but she was also brave because David has just declared death for her family. And in a moment where she could have felt so incredibly threatened, instead of turning and running, we see Abigail is so brave. So she hears what David says. She knows that he has all these men with drawn swords following him. Revenge is hanging in the air, and death is certain for her and her family. But verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. Now that also tells me another thing. Not only is Abigail beautiful and intelligent and brave, but she is also not wearing skinny jeans because <laughs> I was wearing skinny jeans and I rode a donkey recently in the Holy Land. And let me just tell you, you have to be extremely athletic and not wearing skinny jeans if you're going to quickly get off a donkey. So that is also true about her. So when she quickly got off this donkey, it says... She goes and bows down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Abigail goes to David in the posture of extreme humility. And no part of this situation is Abigail's fault. She didn't cause this. She didn't ask for this. She certainly didn't egg this on. No part of this is her fault. And yet Abigail says, David, I know someone has to take the blame for this. So I'm asking that you just place it on me. Now, why would Abigail do that? Because she's the only one strong enough in this story to handle it. Humility is not a position of weakness. It's actually a position of great strength. You see, Abigail comes and she identifies herself to David as listen to what your servant has to say. Because Abigail knows it's only with humility that you'll get the opportunity for the other person to listen to you. Humility opens up the opportunity for the other person to listen. So in humility, Abigail goes and says to David, David, will you listen to what I have to say? This is the most, in the physical realm, this is the most dangerous position for her 
she is kneeling down in this vulnerable position before David, who's leading 400 men with drawn swords. But you see, she's going in a strength that overrides physical realities because she is not walking in her flesh at this point. She is operating in her spirit. And she knows something that we must remember. God is good, and God is good at being God. And so when God asks us things that seem so foreign to us, like in the Bible, when it says, love your enemy, in the physical, that is nonsense. But in the spiritual, it is God-sense. When God says, you are more blessed when you give than you receive, in the physical, that is nonsense. But in the spiritual, that is God-sense. And if we want to be serious about being women who look like we spend a little bit of time with our Lord, we've got to start operating a lot more in God-sense. And when we are threatened, when someone comes against you, when someone is critical and ugly to you, I'm not saying that ever happens here, but in Charlotte, North Carolina, we got some ugly acting people sometimes. I'm just telling y'all, it's crazy. I mean, we got some people who think it is their spiritual gift to discourage people. Like, they just walk around with this mental picture. Now, of, of just discouraging people. And I'm not saying that those people are here, but if you are seated near one, don't look at them right now because things will not go well for you, okay? Just keep your eyes locked up here. But you see, in the physical, we feel like we got to have the curse of the comeback, right? It's like, oh no, she did not just say that to me. Well, good thing I know exactly what to say to her to prove how wrong she is, how right I am, and cut her down because down is where she needs to be right now, right? In the physical, in the physical, you tell somebody who has just been threatened by another person's words. In the physical, you tell them, be humble and just be gracious. In the physical, that is nonsense. But in the spiritual... To give a humble response back to a prideful attack, that is God's sense. It's only in humility that we will have the opportunity for the other person to ever listen and for other people to ever think that God's people look different than the world. So Abigail has got David's attention because instead of running and screaming and operating in her physical, he is seeing someone positioned in a physically weak position, but operating in the greatest spiritual strength I think David has ever seen. And what's about to happen here is we're about to hear one of the most powerful speeches in all of the Bible, and it's given by a woman. So I thought it would be a little healthy today to uncover what is it that Abigail says that so dramatically changes David, who, by the way, is not just 
a key figure in the story of David and Goliath, who is not just the anointed, future appointed king of Israel, but David, who the very bloodline will produce King Jesus. I think David is a pretty central person in Scripture. And he is about to be redirected from stepping outside of his destiny that God has for him. He is about to derail his destiny, and God sends a woman in the position of humility to speak to this man, and it changes everything. So I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty cool to look and see what did she say. She says to David in verse 24, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Verse 25, may my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Naval. Point number one, we have finally reached that place. I know that you already have 16 notes on your page, but we have reached the official point number one. And all the note takers in the room say, hallelujah. Yeah, okay, point number one. We must watch where we pay attention. We must watch where we pay attention. This is what Abigail says to David first off. David, pay no attention to that wicked man, Naval. Because Abigail knows we will steer where we stare. And if we are staring at fools and foolish things, we will steer right toward being foolish ourselves. Because if we are looking, if we are paying attention to fools and foolish things, we will bankrupt our perspective. When we wake up first thing in the morning, if we make the first thing that we stare at, if we make the first thing that we pay our attention to, if we pay our first thoughts to social media, and it's so easy to do, especially for those of us who use our phones as our alarm clocks, you know, we swipe it off, and all of a sudden, the world is waiting with all kinds of stuff. It wants to sell us stuff. It wants to tell us about how great everyone else's life is, and then we've got a whole bunch we have to do to catch up with it. And we hop on Instagram, and all of a sudden, we have given our first thoughts to social media. Everybody else's marriage is going to look more romantic. Everybody else's life is going to look more fun. Everybody else's kids are going to look more obedient. Everybody else's job is going to look more convenient. Everybody else's assignment by God is going to look bigger than ours. And suddenly, we have bankrupted our perspective. And instead of approaching our day with this thought, God is good, and God is good at being God, suddenly... Because we have paid attention to fools and foolish things and things that make us think foolish thoughts. First off, we have given our first thoughts away, not dedicating them to God. Then suddenly, we're going to walk into our day feeling less than, left out, and lonely. This isn't just a spiritual truth. This is scientific. My friend Dr. Caroline Leaf did brain research, and she said that every night when we sleep, baby neurons are formed. And when we wake up in the morning, how we use those baby neurons, first off, our first thoughts, what we give those to will determine our pattern of thought the rest of the day. So when we hop on social media and suddenly we feel a little left out, a little less than, a little lonely, then it's going to give us that filter through which we process the rest of the day. That will become our thought process. That's why I'm so passionate about the app that we developed called First Five. 
Because if we truly want God to be first, we've got to give him our first thoughts. So we developed this app through Proverbs 31 called First Five, where you can set your alarm clock in the app. And then it's almost like we can hijack the minute your phone alarm goes off, you turn it off, and it's almost like we kind of hijack your phone for five minutes, right? And you just read the Word of God, and we take you through books of the Bible in less than five minutes a day. I love it. I'm passionate about it because I have seen that what I pay attention to, what I give my first thoughts to, it matters. Abigail says, pay no attention. We must watch where we pay our attention. The second thing we can learn from Abigail's speech is this. Verse 26, she says, Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, your enemies and all who intend to harm my master will be like Naval. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for my Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. She's bringing him this gift in verse 27. As she gives him this gift, she is reminding him, David, not only do you need to watch where you pay attention, but remember your true intention. When you woke up today, it was not your intention to kill a bunch of people. It was your intention for food. But when you were denied in food, suddenly it unearthed this emotional response that's way out of proportion to the offense that was given you. Naval just basically said, I ain't giving you food, dude. And now David has escalated from that all the way to I'm gonna kill somebody, actually a bunch of somebodies, right? So Abigail is bringing him down and saying, David, remember your true intention. This isn't who you are. Even more than that, David, remember who you are. David, you have got a destiny, a good destiny. So I don't know if, you, if this ever happens to you, but sometimes I will wake up in the morning and I will think, today is my day. Like, I'm going to eat so good today. I am. I, oh, I am. It is vegetables and fruit. It is going to be that kind of a day. That is what I'm doing. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to be sweet to my people. I'm going to be so sweet. Like, they... No matter what they say, I'm going to be sweet and I'm going to be kind. It is just going to be amazing. And then my people wake up. (laughs) And it takes about 2.3 seconds for them to all start bumping into my happy. And, And I suddenly go from a woman who is going to have the most holy of days ever in the history of my life to being a crazy person who is looking at my people, screaming at the top of my lungs, saying, don't you people know I wrote a book called Unglued? You cannot do this to me anymore. We are held accountable to a different standard, you people of mine, right? And I just think to myself, I'm losing it. I am seriously losing it. That's what Abigail's saying to David. She's basically saying, hey, David, If you'll just keep front and center in your mind your real intention, if you will think about and decide in advance, like pre-decide who you really want to be, then you have a much greater chance of walking that out as your destiny. Remember your true intention. And then the very last thing, directive, that she gives 
as you skip on down to verse 30, she says this, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him, has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed of having avenged himself. Basically what Abigail is saying here, there's this Hebrew word for this sentence of, David, you do not want to bring on you this staggering burden that will sit on you, this feeling of regret, that you, you are gonna make a decision that's gonna lead you to this place of regret, and then that regret is going to sit on you like a bad roommate. It's gonna wake up with you, it's gonna do life with you, it's gonna go to bed with you, it's gonna dream with you. It's just a very, very bad roommate. And the Hebrew word for that heavy conscience, that feeling of regret, it's called fuka. It's spelled P-U-W-Q-A-H. It's called fuka. And that, that thing that basically Abigail is saying to David is not only do you need to watch where you're paying attention and remember your true intention, but enter into prevention by making it your process to say to yourself, don't bring that fuka down on your head. Don't bring that fuka down on your head. Because wisdom makes decisions today that are still good for tomorrow. Foolishness is something that we really have to watch. Because when we make decisions that feel good in the moment but are terrible long term, that's bringing a fuka down on our head. So I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, we need some fuka freedom. All right, look at your second choice neighbor and say, we need some Fuka freedom, girl. <laughs> but listen to my heart. Some of you, some of you are thinking, Lisa, that's amazing, but what about all those choices that are sitting on me because I have that heavy feeling of regret? Can I tell you, that I lived with that heavy feeling of regret for a long, long time too. And God's grace never ever walks up to a person, looks at whatever fuka they have invited into their life. Grace never looks at all of those mistakes and all of those regrets and all of those hurts and all those things that have caused us shame. When God's grace walks up to us, grace never looks at all of that shakes his head and runs the other direction. Grace doesn't do that. Satan's condemnation does that. Satan's burdens do that. Satan's desire to hold us back from all of God's goodness and forgiveness does that. But God's grace always embraces. Warts and all, mistakes and all, shame and all. God's grace envelops us and says, I am enough and it is finished. You are forgiven. Now receive my forgiveness and walk from here. Walk from here. Understanding wisdom makes decisions today that is still good for tomorrow. Wisdom makes decisions today that are still good for tomorrow. I am going to embrace wisdom. I am going to make decisions today that are still good for, mar for tomorrow. That's what Abigail is saying to David. David, watch where you pay attention. Remember your true intention. Enter into some prevention. Now, this is amazing. David stands there and has taken all of this in. 
And he has listened to Abigail, and at the very end of her speech, because remember, yes, she's intelligent, and yes, she's brave, and, and yes, she is humble, and, and yes, she is brilliant, and all of those things. But then at the very end of verse 31, she says to David, and when the Lord has brought my master's success, and I just imagine this is the part where she reminds him, I'm beautiful. She says, remember your servant. I'm just reading the Bible, y'all. Okay, verse 32. So David says to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, if I had not heard from you, Abigail, as surely as the Lord lives, the God of Israel, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she brought and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and I have granted your request. <laughs> Y'all, it's about to get so good. Okay, when David went to Nabal, because she eventually had to go tell her husband what she has gotten herself into. All right, so when Abigail went to Naval, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. She told him nothing until daybreak. Dun, dun, dun. Then in the morning, and you know he had a bad headache. In the morning, when Naval was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And 10 days later, the Lord struck Naval and he died. Hallelujah. No, that is bad. Don't say that. Poor Naval. Okay. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how much Abigail must have trusted God? Because Naval was her source of greatest discouragement, her greatest feeling of defeat in life, her greatest burden in her life. And she had to fought to save his life. I mean, she had to fight to save his life, right? So this shows me how much Abigail truly knew that God is good and God is good at being God. I don't have to manipulate these circumstances to make my circumstances better. I just have to follow God. My job is to be obedient to God. God's job is everything else. Otherwise, it would have been so convenient for Abigail to go to David and say, hey, David, here's the deal. Like, definitely spare all the men, okay? But at 10 p.m. every night, Naval, he goes to the outhouse. <laughs> Kill him, right? <laughs> but that's not what Abigail did. She fought even to save this man who was a burden in her life. But God is good, and God is good at being God. And God took care of Naval, and God took care of Abigail. And when David heard that Naval was dead, he said, verse 39, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my case, who has upheld my case against Naval for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrongdoing and brought Naval's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. Y'all, this is so much. Why in the world do we need to be entertained by reality TV and Facebook when we got the book, right? This is so much better. It's amazing. So David sends his servants to Carmel to say to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, here is your maidservant ready to serve you. Verse 42, and Abigail quickly got back up on that donkey. Oh, I bet she did. I mean, 
Girl was excited about the situation. Now, here's the thing. The story does not end like all tied up in a neat, nice bow, right? Because David, I don't know, he's like got some other wives and concubines. It becomes like a bad episode of Sister Wives, right? But here's the thing that I love so much. I like that Abigail and David's story doesn't tie up in a neat, nice bow because my life never ties up in a neat, nice bow. I always got some messy stuff in my life. I feel like my life is just one whack-a-mole after another, like that game you play at the Chuck E. Cheese, you know? It's like one problem pops up and you beat that one down and three more come up and then you're beating this and beating this. Have y'all ever played that game? Y'all, it's such a picture of life, right? But I love God's divinity is not afraid of our messy humanity. And he steps in and he does life with us because God is good. God is good to me. God is good to you. Even when circumstances are not, God is good. And if we will hold on and if we will be women who really, really seek to live his word, You won't do it perfectly. I never do it perfectly. But as we seek to live his word, we have a much greater chance of staying in his will. And when we are walking in his will, we will experience the greatest sense of his presence. And we will know in the midst of crazy circumstances, we will know God is good. God is good to me. And God is good at being God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That we can stand here in the midst of the circumstances that break our heart, that hurt us, that frustrate us. Lord, the burdens of those circumstances that we walked in with today. Lord, I pray that we just take them And physically just take our hands and just lift them out and acknowledge that we don't have to bring the power to fix all this. We don't have to bring the solutions. We don't have to bring the answers that fix this, Lord. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to be obedient to you. And you are good at being God. And you are the one that will bring the power. You are the one that will bring the solutions. You are the one that will bring the answers. So I just have to lay the burdens down so I can take your hand and walk with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And all God's girls said, amen. Amen.